Welcome to the Ship Gold Friday Gold Wrap, your overview of this week's news impacting the precious metals markets. It's Friday, March 31st. I'm your host, Mike Meharry. Thanks for tuning in. You know, it was kind of a quiet week. I mean, by quiet, there wasn't another big meltdown in the financial system or the economy. Not any really big news that rocked the markets or anything like that. But, you know, don't you kind of feel like we're just waiting for the next shoe to drop? You know, it's like when you're a little kid and and you've done something wrong and like your mom caught you and you're waiting for your dad to get home. Kind of feels like that. Or maybe like the eye of a hurricane. You know, it's calm and eerily quiet, but the storm isn't over and you know it. Now, I'm not the only one who feels this way. There are other people that are worried something else is coming down the pa- uh, coming down the pike. I saw a note from Barclays warning that a second wave of bank deposit outflows could be coming. Quote, we think the first wave of outflows may be nearly over, but the recent tumult regarding deposit safety may have awakened sleepy depositors and started what we believe will be a second wave of deposit departures with balances moving into money market funds. But don't you worry. Jerome Powell says the banking system is sound. And the failure of SVB and Signature, those were outliers. Speaking of Jerome Powell, how about that Federal Reserve inflation fight we've got going? Did you know in the week before it raised interest rates another 25 basis points at its March meeting, the Fed added more than $94 billion to its balance sheet. And this was on top of the nearly $300 billion that it piled onto the balance sheet in the first week of its bank bailout. The increase in the balance sheet reflects the nearly $400 billion in loans that the Fed has handed out to banks through various programs in the first two weeks of this bailout. In other words, the Fed has created nearly $400 billion in inflation while pretending to fight inflation. I'll link to an article in the show notes with more detailed information on the balance sheet, and you can see exactly what the Fed is doing. Suffice to say, worst inflation fight ever. Now, in last week's show, I talked about what I think the Fed is trying to pull off, and I'm not going to go way deep into that again. You can listen to last week's show. But in a nutshell, it's trying to maintain the illusion of an inflation fight as it simultaneously attempts to fix the banking system that the inflation fight broke. Now, as much as this pains me to say, I kind of think the Fed executed a shrewd move with this bailout. In effect, it created a way to mitigate the impact of interest rate hikes on bank balance sheets without having to pause its monetary tightening more broadly. In other words, it can keep raising rates at these Fed meetings. It can keep being hawkish about fighting inflation. In fact, the Fed raised rates last week despite the unfolding financial crisis. But here, here's the thing. It's a kick-the-can-down-the-road scheme, right? Here's what I think. I think Powell and company are hoping this loan boondoggle will buy them time to keep tightening for a little while longer in hopes that the CPI will drop enough in the next couple of months so that they can claim victory over inflation and then pivot to fight the effects of their inflation fight without losing face. 
Here's the problem. Even if they manage to thread this needle, something else is going to break in the economy or in the financial system. The question is just what will that be? And commercial real estate is a darn good candidate. So just to provide some context and as way of kind of an overview, the rampant money creation and 0% interest rates during the COVID pandemic, on top of three rounds of quantitative easing and more than a decade of artificially low interest rates in the wake of the 2008 financial crisis, created all kinds of distortions and malinvestments in the economy and the financial system. It was inevitable that something would break when the Federal Reserve tried to raise interest interest rates in order to fight the price inflation that it caused with its loose monetary policy. All of this is the Fed's fault. Now, a lot of people seem to think that it's just because the Fed raised interest rates and it should just lower them again, but that's not really it at all. I think if you really look and and dissect all of this. The real problem was all the way back in the 1990s when it decided it was a good idea to cut interest rates to almost zero in order to uh, prop up the economy after the dot-com bubble bust. Of course, that blew up the bubbles that led to the 2008 financial crisis, which led to more than a decade of 0% interest rates and all of that quantitative easing. And then we piled COVID on top of that. And here we are. Now, as I've said often in this podcast, easy money is the lifeblood of the economy and the financial system. The Fed has made it so by basically feeding it easy money since the 1990s. The Fed started draining that lifeblood away when it stepped in to fight the price inflation. It could no longer write off as transitory. So, Really, when you boil it all down, there was no way that the central bank wasn't going to break something. This was all the inevitable outcome of ridiculously dumb monetary policy, which is designed to to blow up bubbles and basically necessary in order for the U.S. government to borrow and spend the way that it borrows and spends. I mean, the whole system is faulty but it's all intertwined with itself, and it's all basically unsustainable. So something was going to break. The banks were the first thing to break. But as you know, at its March meeting, the Fed hiked rates again, as I've already mentioned. The bailouts did not address the underlying problem, and the most recent hike will only exacerbate the underlying problem. The bottom line is that it is inevitable that something else will break. I cannot emphasize this enough. There will be more cracks in the dam, more holes in the dam, more leaks, right? So what's up with the commercial real estate market? I I mentioned that this was a, uh, a potential area of concern. And it's kind of good to look at this because it kind of, it's a microcosm of the problems that are all over the economy. So as I talk about commercial real estate, you can understand that this is being replicated in all kinds of different markets. So the commercial real estate market has experienced malinvestments and misallocations that I've already mentioned it. Uh, that I've already mentioned. And now the commercial real estate market is under pressure due to, you guessed it, rising interest rates. 
A report by Yahoo Finance this week noted, quote, big owners of property around the country were already under pressure from the Federal Reserve's aggressive campaign to raise interest rates, which raised borrowing costs and lowered building values. Commercial real estate owners also continued to deal with the fallout from government shutdowns of the economy during the COVID pandemic. Boy, that was wise, right? That was almost three years ago. Can you believe that? Absolutely insane what governments did during that pandemic uh, and the destruction that it wrought that we're still suffering from today that, you know, everybody's too short-sighted to actually look and say that was a problem. It's almost like we've dropped it down the memory hole anyway. Uh, Even today, a lot of commercial real estate sits empty while people are still working at home. There were some fundamental shifts uh, in in the economy and the workforce due to the way that government responded to COVID. And that has been uh, uh, that has put pressure on the commercial real estate market. So there's an even bigger problem that's looming on the horizon. Um, And that's the fact that a lot of commercial real estate loans are reaching maturity, and that means they're going to have to be refinanced. According to TREP, $448 billion in commercial real estate, CRE, uh, I can use that acronym as well, um, $448 billion in CRE loans will mature in 2023. That's this year. Banks hold $227 billion of those loans, so roughly half. Now, get this. Over the next five years, $2.56 trillion, that's trillion with a T, $2.56 trillion in commercial real estate loans will mature with $1.4 trillion held by banks. This is a quote from that uh, report. With rates rising and credit conditions tightening, many loans may face an uphill battle as refinancing becomes more costly, especially if banks and other lenders look to reduce their CRE exposures, as we saw happen during previous recessionary cycles. This could lead to lower property values and larger losses for lenders. Now, this is basically what we saw in 2008 with housing, right? Uh, We had all of these overvalued homes. They were bid up with easy money. And then when the Fed tightened, the easy money went away. We had all these adjustable rate mortgages. People started to, uh, to, to go underwater. They couldn't sell the houses for the value of the loans. And we saw this big collapse and it, and it becomes a, a perpetuating cycle, right? Uh, the, the problems cause real estate values to drop, which exacerbates the problems. We could very well see this kind of cycle happen in commercial real estate. According to a real estate economist quoted in the Yahoo Finance article, things were already bad before the bank failures. Quote, there was already there were already liquidity issues. There were fewer deals getting done. Access to capital was getting scarcer and the banking crisis is almost certainly going to compound that. Now, according to this article, small to mid-sized banks hold most commercial real estate mortgages. So it's not the big two big to fail banks that have all of these commercial real estate 
uh, mortgages. It's actually the small to medium-sized banks, according to a report by Goldman Sachs, uh, an economist there. Banks with less than $250 billion in assets hold more than 80% of the commercial real estate loans. Now, these are the banks under the most pressure due to the unfolding financial crisis, right? We're talking banks in the same vein as Signature Bank and Silicon Valley Bank. That's a big yikes. And get this, Signature Bank was a big lender in the New York City commercial real estate market. It extended loans for office towers and multifamily properties. And as of the end of 2022, Signature held some $36 billion in commercial real estate loans. Now, we've already seen signs of stress in the commercial real estate market before these bank issues came up. Last month, Columbia Property Trust defaulted on $1.7 billion in floating rate loans tied to seven buildings in New York, San Francisco, Boston, and Jersey City. Stop and think about that for a second. $1.7 billion in floating rate loans. That means adjustable mortgage rates. That means... Everybody thought, oh, interest rates are going to be low forever. The Fed's got our back on this, right? We're in an era of low interest rates, so we're safe doing adjustable rate mortgages. People thought the same thing in 2005 and 2006 with uh, regular house mortgages. So now we've had this big increase in interest rates, adjustable rate mortgages adjust up, and Columbia Property Trust defaults. Then we had uh, Brookfield Asset Brookfield Asset Management. Uh, that company defaulted on $750 million plus in debt that backed two LA office towers. BlackRock Global Fixed Income CIO Rick Ryder told Yahoo Finance that the problem is not going to resolve itself anytime soon. Quote, when you raise rates this quickly, the interest-sensitive parts of the economy, and particularly where there's financing or leverage attached to it, then that's where you create stress. That's not going away tomorrow. Now, Ryder didn't say it, but we all know who raised rates Quickly, right? Powell and Company over at the Federal Reserve. Now, again, I really can't reiterate this enough. The Fed created this problem long before when it held interest rates artificially low for so long. It incentivized all of this borrowing. Everybody, again, just assumed that rates were going to stay low forever. So they levered up and they took on more and more risk. Now, borrowers will likely face tightening lending standards in the days ahead. According to a Goldman Sachs note, bank lending levels had already tightened significantly over the last two quarters as recession fears ramped up. Again, recession fears being driven by the Fed fighting inflation with monetary tightening. Everybody knows that this is going to create a recession. Now, they've under uh, understated how bad this recession will likely be, but... They do get that the uh, tightening monetary conditions will likely lead to a recession, and that has led to tightening lending, which is kind of the whole point of the, uh, the inflation fight, right? Anyway, this Goldman note projected that instability in the banking system, and we definitely have plenty of that right now, it's going to lead to an even more tightening of credit. And that's bad news for folks who are about to have to refinance a bunch of loans. 
Of course, mainstream economists and Fed officials keep insisting that the banking system is sound. Economists quoted in the Yahoo Finance article swore that the issues in commercial real estate don't pose any kind of systemic risk. Everything will be okay, they claim. If only wishing made it so, right? And of course, these are the same people that told us the subprime problem in 2007 was contained, inflation was transitory, and quantitative easing was a temporary program that would be unwound. So if you believe the spin, hit me up. I'll send you some free gold. Now, of course, the commercial real estate market might not be the next thing to break, but I can't emphasize this enough. Something else will break. It could be a big stock market crash or uh, maybe a bunch of corporate bankruptcies, uh, maybe some other sector, maybe the bond market. Everything in the economy and in the financial system has been hollowed out by Fed monetary policy. So keep your eyes on all the bubbles because one of them is going to pop and probably more than one. So I want to close out the show with a little news about silver that came out uh, a couple of weeks ago that I never did get to on the show. Um, To kind of set this up, I want to point out that the silver-gold ratio is still solidly over 80 to 1. That means it takes over 80 ounces of silver to buy one ounce of gold. That tells you that from a historical perspective, silver is way undervalued compared to gold. Uh, To kind of put it into historical perspective, the average ratio in the modern era has been between 40 to 1 and 50 to 1. Now, historically, that ratio has always returned to the mean when it has gotten out of whack. And when it does, it tends to do so with a vengeance. The ratio fell uh, all the way to 30 to 1 back in 2011, and it was below 20 to 1 in 1979, the last time we had these big rallies in silver. Also, Silver tends to outperform gold during a gold bull market. So if you think gold has a solid pathway up, silver may well do even better. And I do think that gold is close to a breakout. You know, there's a lot of resistance around $2,000 an ounce. We've tested it a couple of times in the last few weeks. Uh, This week, we actually saw some selling taking the price closer to $19.50 an ounce, but there was a solid rally yesterday and we were back to around $19.80 at the close. I think when gold can crack $2,000 and hold it, there's going to be a fast run up. Uh, A friend of mine does technical analysis and he said there's another resistance point or maybe it, the, the actual resistance point is going to be around 20 to uh, 2050 to 2070 uh, and then he sees a quick run up of course you know all speculation but you know me I like to look at the macro the big picture with the inflation fight now actually inflation creation I think there's a good setup for a rally in gold a further rally. Anyway, back to silver. I, you know, I got to talking about gold because, if again, if we have a gold rally, you're probably going to see a similar rally in silver. Gold tends to take silver with it, and then silver outperforms. And again, it is way undervalued. Basically, what you have right now is silver on sale. And quite frankly, we've had silver on sale for quite a long time. It's been a really good time to buy silver and add to your silver position if that's something that you're wanting to do and that window is still open. 
Now, beyond the monetary reasons to be sanguine on the trajectory of silver's price, there is some interesting demand dynamics in the works. You know, without a lot of fanfare, silver demand was uh, at record levels in 2022, and there is reason to believe that that will continue um, as we move into the next several decades. Now, one reason is the rapidly increasing demand for silver in the green energy sector. In fact, an Australian study projects that solar cells may use most of the world's silver reserves by 2050. So due to its outstanding electrical conductivity, and you probably know this, silver is an important element in the production of solar panels. Um, It's used to conduct electrical charges out of the solar cell and into the solar system. Each solar panel only uses a small amount of silver, but with the demand for solar panels growing exponentially every single year, those small amounts actually add up to a lot. Now, according to a research paper by scientists at the University of New South Wales, solar manufacturers will likely require over 20% of the current annual silver supply by 2027. So that's just, what, four years from now. And by 2050, solar panel production will use approximately 85 to 98% of the current global silver reserves. The paper also noted that more efficient N-type technologies, and anybody who does solar stuff will know way more about what that means than I do, but uh, these new technologies are being developed and they require even more silver than the current PERC cells that make up about 80% of the current market. So the bottom line is unless mining really ramps up in the next couple of years, we're talking about a severe supply squeeze just due to the production of solar panels and green energy. And of course, tight supply and high demand generally means rising prices, right? Now, some argue that the demand for silver in the solar energy sector will eventually flatten as the industry develops cheaper alternatives to silver. But according to the paper, Even if the industry reduces the use of silver, demand is still going to increase. Quote, the results show that the current rate of reduction in silver consumption is not sufficient to avoid increasing silver demand for the PV. So, with billions of government money pouring into the renewable energy sector, the solar energy market is somewhat shielded from economic downturns. And that's one of the issues that you have with silver. It is a monetary metal. Ultimately, it does tend to track with gold over time. But it is also an industrial metal. About 60% of its demand comes from uh, industrial and commercial uses. So when you have a recession and industrial output falls, that demand for silver tends to fall. But we have now an energy sector that is subsidized that will not likely fall off when we have a recession because all these governments are committed to this green energy. And no matter what you think about green energy, that's just a fact. And it's important to consider um, as you look at uh, silver and gold and, and investments. So Basically, what I'm saying is even if the economy goes south, governments are going to continue to fund solar projects and these other green energy initiatives. Um, And that means the green energy sector is likely going to drive demand for silver into the foreseeable future. Um, There was another article that I wrote this week, I'll link to it in the show notes page, talking about uh, increasing demand for silver jewelry. 
So there's a lot of demand push uh, in the silver market right now. And, uh, you know, if you're looking for something to invest in long term, silver might be a good option because the demand tells us that in all likelihood, all things being equal, we'll see an increase in the price of silver as we move down the road. Now, I'm a big fan of silver for a couple of reasons. First of all, it's you know, kind of the, I hate to use this term, but it's kind of the poor man's gold, right? It's much easier for people with more modest incomes to get into investing silver. Right now it's at $23, $24 an ounce. Um, you can begin to stockpile silver, get your money out of fiat dollars and into silver, a tangible asset uh, for a relatively modest price. The other thing that I like about silver is that if you're thinking about apocalyptic scenarios, cases where we actually have a dollar collapse. And I, I don't know that that's ever going to happen, at least not swiftly. I, I kind of feel like the dollar collapse is going to be uh, slow and drawn out. I could be wrong, but that's my, that's my gut. But regardless, it is always good to have alternative ways to do business. Think about the advent of central bank digital currency. That's blowing along way faster than anything imagined. So we're going to want to have options. Currency competition. And silver is easy to transact business in. You can get um, uh, junk silver, which is basically old quarters and dimes that were minted before 1964. They're about 90% silver. You can get those uh, relatively cheaply and actually do business. I've been paid in silver coins before. So two reasons I like silver. Easy point of entry. Um, and, and then also, uh, I, I like them as a way to transact business even more so than, than for gold. Um, so, you know, I think it's wise to hold both gold and silver because while they're the same, they're also different. And, uh, if, if you've watched the markets over the years, you know silver is more volatile. But I like silver. We have silver on sale right now, and we have demand dynamics that are very much in favor of silver. So just something to think about. Uh, you know, if you're if you're looking to park some of your dollars into uh, if you yeah, into metals, this might be a good time. And if you want to do that. Talk to a Shift Gold Precious Metal Specialist. You can do it today. Just call 1-888-GOLD-160 or email info at shiftgold.com or go to shiftgold.com and get to the Getting Started tab. And you can actually chat with a Precious Metal Specialist right there online. I say this every week, but these folks really are fantastic. They know their stuff. They're going to listen to you. You know, They're not going to try to bait and switch you into some more expensive thing. They want to help you invest uh, and, and protect your wealth using gold and silver and precious metals. And they want to work with you to see how that's going to work best for your situation. So give them a call today. And with that, that is a gold wrap for this week. You can get more details on all of these stories and more. And of course, keep up with the latest precious metals news and analysis throughout the week at shiftgold.com news. You can, of course, subscribe to the Friday Gold Wrap over at Apple Podcasts, on the Shift Gold YouTube channel, on Stitcher, on Google Podcasts, uh, and other platforms. All of these links are on the show notes page. You can email me, mmahary at shiftgold.com, M-M-A-H-A-R-R-E-Y at shiftgold.com. Love to hear from folks. And if you are in the New York City area on Saturday, the Saturday after 
this podcast comes out. I will be in New York speaking at the Take Human Action Tour. You can check that out at TakeHumanActionTour.com and get more information about that. I'll be in Manhattan talking about 10th Amendment stuff. So with that, I got a pack. Talk to y'all next week. Have a good weekend.